As you're being seated, find your Bible, if you can open it up with me, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. So I was in the Rocky Mountain National Park. I was in a parking lot, probably about 8,500 feet above sea level, when I, I met this guy. Older guy, drives up in an SUV. I remember it was a red SUV, and he starts engaging me in conversation. And so he begins to tell me, I used to be a park ranger. And so he's giving me all these details about stuff and places to see and things that I need to make sure that I catch. And then he says, get in, I'll show you. Well, for some strange reason, I got in the car. So yeah, I don't really recommend it out in the middle of nowhere. You know, you get in the car with a stranger, everything I tell my children not to do. But so I get, I get in the car and we're driving around and he's showing me all this stuff. And I mean, the guy's a walking encyclopedia about, about this park. And finally, he, he just stops and he looks at me real intently and he goes, do you believe in ghosts? I said, well, I believe in the Holy Ghost. I thought I was going to get to witness to him, but boy, he deflected that pretty quickly. And so then he starts telling me about this hotel that's in Estes Park and that he does tours every day and he starts handing me his business card. I'm like, okay, I'll go ahead and leave right now and and how I could see the ghost that that haunted this particular hotel. Did you know that according to YouGov.com, half of Americans believe in ghosts? 15% of Americans believe that they have seen one. 35% of Americans believe that aliens from other planets have landed on Earth. So if you look at our movies, if you look at some of our books, our our, uh, culture, you'll find that this idea of the paranormal, this idea of ghosts, it is something that's very prevalent within our, our culture. You have movies like a Christmas Carol. What is a star? A ghost. You have, anybody remember Ghostbusters? When there's something strange. I talk about a shelf life. Man, I still have that in VHS, right? So you have Ghostbusters, you have Poltergeist, Beetlejuice, The Sixth Sense, Casper, The Friendly Ghost. I mean, ghosts are all over our, our movies and, and television programs. There's something that people are really fascinated about. Also, uh, the paranormal or super or extraterrestrial. Uh, there's a lot of TV shows, those things out there these days about the spiritual world. And we as Christians do believe that there is a spiritual world. There's angels and there's demons and there is such thing as spiritual life. And in Luke chapter 24, the disciples thought that they saw a ghost. In verse 36, it says, And as they were saying these things... Now, remember last week we talked about Jesus appearing to the two men, Cleopas and his friend, on the road to Emmaus. And so they they went back and they reported that they had seen Jesus. And as they were talking about this, so they're huddled up, he himself, talking about Jesus, came in and stood among them. And so he says to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Now here's my opening question for you today. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ nothing more than people seeing the ghost of Jesus? Seeing a ghost in front of them. 
And you say, of course not, Lash. But it might surprise you to know this, that as you dialogue with people about Christianity, there are some unusual theories that people have about Christianity. One of them is this, that you can explain Christianity in that Jesus was an extraterrestrial being who came and lived on the earth, and he did these miracles because he had powers that we do not possess. Another theory that's out there explains the resurrection as people are just seeing the ghost of Jesus. And then there's a third theory that particularly grows within academia and intellectualism, which will say that there, are, there is no such thing as miracles, there's no spirits, that, that, that there's no ghosts, forget about all that stuff. Christianity, though, should be understood this way as a symbolic. It's a symbolic fight between good and evil, between love and hate, and so the Bible should be taken somewhat as an allegory or a metaphorical book. Now, Jesus says to the disciples, peace to you, and then he asks them this question, why are you troubled? Why, why, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in, in your heart? So he's probing into their inner being. All right, you don't have peace right now. You have turmoil within you. You are anxious. And he says, here I am, peace to you. Why are you troubled and and why are you doubting that I'm real? Why are you doubting your faith? If a person wanted to go to an Ivy League school in the early years of our country, what do you think they would likely have been studying? Somebody said ministry, and they're right. The Ivy League schools, the Harvards, Yales, Dartmouth, all those Ivy League schools, they were originally uh, started to train people for ministry. And early on, these schools usually taught many of the traditional orthodox elements of Christianity. But then something began to happen over time. Usually it begins with doubts. And then doubts lead to questions. And then there becomes this troubled spirit. And eventually many intellectuals will begin to re-engineer Christianity into a symbolic faith. Now in doing so, they may reject it entirely or they may embrace it as a somewhat of a philosophical system that helps you communicate and understand and process life. Dr. Serene Jones, who is the professor of Union Theological Seminary, president, I should say, of Union Theological Seminary in New York, New York, recently gave an interview. Now, Union Seminary was started by the Presbyterian Church in 1836, and when it was started, they believed that Jesus was the physical Son of God who physically lived a life among us and died and rose again. But in this recent interview with the New York Times, the president of the seminary said that those who claim to know whether or not, and she was talking about Jesus' resurrection, happened are kidding themselves. She went on to talk about how she understands Christianity, and she explained that she sees the cross and the resurrection symbolically, that they didn't have to have occurred, that the cross can be understood as a symbol of hatred and the resurrection as a symbol of love. And so the dialogue of Christianity can be about 
how love battles hate within our society. So within some streams of theological liberal Christianity, it's been reduced to a symbolic faith. But now hear me on this. If Christianity is purely symbolic, you can, as Dr. Jones actually does, reject basic aspects of the faith. If it's purely symbolic and Jesus didn't physically rise again, you don't need a virgin birth, you don't need an incarnation. The miracles are not necessary. Jesus' atoning death on the cross is not needed. You don't even need a bodily resurrection. Let's keep going. If Christianity is nothing more than philosophical symbolism about a fight between love and hate, then there is no need for Jesus to be the Son of God, no need for a suffering Savior, really no need for a belief in heaven or the eternal. If the cross and the resurrection are just symbolic, then Jesus himself doesn't even have to be real. He can just be a mystical idea that gave birth to a movement that we call the church, which gave birth to a spiritual movement of love. So how? How does a person who claims to be a minister, and let's reduce it a little further, how do a lot of people that grow up in church I know a lot of people that once sat right here around you, worshiped the Lord just like we did today. How do we get to this point? Well, it usually starts with doubts. Now, doubts are not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Let's be realistic here. We all have some doubts. It's one of the reasons why we have to take steps of faith, because there's a certain element of Christianity that goes beyond just what you can mentally process. There's an element of Christianity that requires faith, but it's not blind faith because God has revealed himself to us. But we all have some doubts, and sometimes those doubts can lead us to have a troubled spirit and ask questions. Don't push away when someone starts asking you questions about the faith, particularly when our kids start asking questions about the faith. Don't shut them down and say, oh, don't ask that. Engage those questions. Help them them process. Help them try to understand the faith as much as they possibly can. Uh, Emphasize to them there is an element of faith, but it's okay for people to have questions. It's okay for people to sometimes have to work through their doubts because on the other side of doubt is a stronger faith when you push through the doubts. But frequently what happens is when it comes to our questions, rather than going to the Bible to see what God has revealed to us, rather than looking for our answers in Jesus, we begin to find the answers to our questions through Google or we find the answers to our questions through secular philosophy, or we take our faith and we morph it into our political system. And whatever it is that we believe politically, we take the Bible and we squeeze it into our political system. Please understand this. Christianity rises and falls on Jesus Christ. Christianity rises and falls on Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't die for your sins and rise again, then Christianity as the Bible teaches it no longer exists. Jesus Christ 
is the focal point of Christianity, who he is and what he has done. The Bible has answers to our questions. It can handle your doubts. But the answers are ultimately found in Jesus Christ and revealed to us through Scripture. Now stick with me, okay? I realize I'm being a little more philosophical today. But stick with me. Jesus is more than a movement. He's more than an inspirational thought for your Facebook page or Twitter feed. Jesus was and is a real person who lived and died so that you can be the person that God created you to be. God did not create you to be a dying voice for better living. I like that. Let me rewind the DVR on that. God didn't create you to be a dying voice for better living. He created you to bring glory to Him and advance His mission with a voice that never dies. So here's here's what we believe. Here's, Here's what the church believes. We believe that the eternal Son of God took on flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's called the Incarnation. That the eternal Son of God, who was and is and always will be, took on flesh, lived among us, died for sins, and overcame death. Now, why is it so important that Jesus be a physical person? Because he answers the physical needs that we have. You you are a physical, real person. You're not just a mystical figure. You you are real. You you have a body. Pinch yourself, okay? Pinch yourself and wake up. You're you're real. Now have a little fun and and pinch pinch the person sitting next to you. I'm, I'm kidding. So wake them up, okay? If it's like my, thanks Paul, if it's like my, my kids, they'll be fighting here in a few moments. He pinched me, right? So we're real people, as, as Descartes once said, I think, therefore. So if Jesus bring, if all Jesus brings is symbolism to the struggle, inspiration to keep up a fight in life that will inevitably lead to my death, then the message of Jesus is not a message of hope. It's just a platitude to be nice to people until I die. That's not hope. That's not life. That's the ship is sinking while the band plays on. Hey, bro, don't worry about the fact that the Titanic is sinking. The band is playing Ring of Fire right now, and we all love Johnny Cash. Let's just enjoy the music right now. Jesus is more than just a temporary fix. He's more than just a platitude to get you through the difficulty of life. Jesus physically took on sin, took on death, and he physically rose again. And because of this, he says to his disciples, peace to you. You don't have to have this troubled heart. No need to fear. It's not not a matter of, well, you're next. Look at me. I, I am real. So look back at the scripture in verse 39. This is exactly what he wants his disciples to do, is to look at them and realize that he is real. He says in verse 39, look at my hands and my feet. That is I, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you can see I have. And having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still, while they still were amazed and unbelieving because of their joy, he asked them, "Do you have anything here to eat?" <laughs> so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Jesus is making a big deal out of the fact that he is real. He says, "Look at me. This is the same body that you saw crucified." This is the same body that you, many of you were there 
when life left my body and I died in a public way where nobody can doubt that it was me and it still is me. This is the same body that you saw die. It is alive. And he says, don't just trust your eyes. You, you can feel me, disciples. Touch me. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. I'm not just a happy idea. I'm not just the, and they all lived happily ever after, ending to the tragic story of the cross. I am real, and I am alive. And then after he says all that, he says, let's eat. It's been a long few days. I, I, I need some food. Why? Because he, he's in a physical body. He, he's wanting to show them that he's real. Now notice, Jesus was a bit health conscious. He had broiled fish to eat. So, you know, he, if you're going to live forever, you've got to throttle back on the deep fryer sometimes. I'm just saying here, okay? Jesus was a bit health conscious right here. I, I've just ruined your after church meal at the cotton patch, haven't I? So you're like, no, no, you hadn't ruined my after church meal. I'm still going to get the chicken fried steak lash because you also told me I'm going to live forever in Jesus, right? So anyway, verse 44, he tells them, these are my words that, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what Jesus does here is he begins to take them back all through the Scripture. The law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible, and then he takes them through the prophets, and he takes them through the Psalms, and he begins to show them how all the Bible was leading to him, that all the Bible was building up to the cross and the resurrection. You see, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, they all speak to Jesus. The Bible simply doesn't make sense without the reality of Jesus' physical life, his atoning death, his conquering resurrection, and his certain return. Jesus is what brings sense. It's what, it's what, he's what connects the totality of Scriptures. And one of the powerful testimonies to the veracity of Scripture is the fact that you have a Bible that spans over, over centuries with a continuity of thought that can be connected by one person, Jesus Christ, who, who lived and died. If you take Jesus and his message out of the world, then what you have is a world where the natural order of things is death. It all, it all ultimately decays. We all ultimately lead to a point of death. Now, to be fair, we try not to think about it. But if you dive down a little bit deeper in our culture and you pay attention and you look around, you'll see that the culture is obsessed with life and death. Go to Netflix, not right now, but later on, go to Netflix and just browse a little bit and you'll see that our, our culture is obsessed with the act that leads to giving life. We're obsessed with finding meaning in life and we're also very consumed with avoiding the end of life. So in this natural world in which we live, we have the year that you're born, the year that you die, a little picture above it, and a hash mark in between that represents who you are. And in this natural world, life becomes about finding love and finding a few smiles in the hash mark. Trying to squeeze that hash mark for all you can get out of it because 
we know somewhere deep within us that the next date, the next year is going to come that completes the picture that's above. Now follow me here. In, in God's natural world, the story ends in life, not death. Okay. The natural order of God is not, uh, I created you, you live your life, and then you die. God is the creator. He is the giver of life. He is the author. He is the artist. He is the carpenter of the cosmos. He is the one who fashioned the mountains. He is the one who brought beauty and joy and meaning and happiness to life. And he created you on purpose for a purpose. God didn't create you to just live until you die. Death, brokenness, injustice, fear, hurt, pain, separation, all this becomes the natural order of a sin-saturated creation. A creation that has been fractured, a creation that has been broken, a creation that is in need of redemption, a creation that is in need of restoration. That's why the physical coming of Jesus into the creation to live among us, to live sinlessly, to die for our sins, to overcome the wages of our sin, which is death, is so important because he resets the natural order of God. Instead of, instead of the natural course of life leading to this dark, dreary end, Jesus resets it all so that in him and the story of God, there is life, healing, grace, courage, love, joy. Restoration, reconciliation, this is the natural order of God. Jesus entered our world, took on flesh, bore our sins, and conquered death so that he might restore the natural order. Because of Jesus, you can experience life the way that it was meant to be. Life wasn't meant to live until you die. Life was meant to be lived for all eternity. Life was meant to be lived with joy. Life was meant to be lived on purpose. Life was meant to be connected to your Creator's purpose to bring Him glory and advance His mission for all eternity. And so Jesus, He talks to the disciples. He's like, hey, this, this is what it all means. Let's go all the way book back to the Genesis and let me walk you through. And everything that you have read, everything that you have studied, everything that you've seen. Hey, you remember whenever I preached on the sermon on the mountainside and I preached the Sermon on the Mount? That's what I was talking about. You remember whenever uh, Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant? Hey, that's what he was talking about. You remember all this stuff that you've studied and seen through your life? It was all leading to me. And I have done this so that you might have forgiveness and life eternal through me. And then the Bible says in verse 45 that then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. When Jesus was explaining all this, it was suddenly like, ah, oh, that makes sense. Suddenly the Holy Spirit began to open their hearts and show them, yes, this, this is true. This is what you need. A friend of mine, his name is Jeff Bingham. He's a theology professor. And he was giving his testimony one day about how he became a Christian. He said he grew up the son of an international oil man. And because of that, they lived all over the world. He lived in all these exotic locations and he lists them all. And you're thinking, man, what would it be like to live life, grow up all over the world like that? And then he ultimately graduated high school in New Mexico. <laughs> but he, he grew up in a Christian family, but he never believed. He never took that initial step of faith and 
and believe. His sister was really working on him. She was sharing her faith with him. And so one night, he's by himself, and he starts reading Jesus' words. And he says, it was as though the Holy Spirit of God just opened my mind. All these doubts, all these questions, all this pushback that I had, it was like God just brought it all together. And here here was his quote. He said, suddenly I believed every word. And so that night, he's six foot eight. He's a mountain of a man. That night, that six foot eight young man got down on his knees and he trusted in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And everything about his life changed from there. The first step of eternal life is a step of faith. It's a step of faith where we quit living life as if we have all the answers and living life as if we are God. We understand that we have done things that we should not and we ask forgiveness for that and we turn from our self-sufficiency and we turn from our own thoughts of deity and we turn to God and we realize that Jesus is a real person who lived a life that we could never live and died on the cross for our sins and we place our faith We place our questions, we place ourselves in Him. You say, what do I I give to God? for? You can't give God anything for your salvation. God asks you simply to surrender yourself. To surrender your life, to surrender your heart, to come to Him in faith. And when we come to God in faith, God changes us from the inside out. The Holy Spirit begins to do a new work within us. And suddenly we're able to live life with forgiveness for our past, purpose for our present, and hope for our future. And you begin to find out why it was that you were created in the first place. You weren't created just to take up space and take in air. You were created to join God in a symphony of praise that uses your life to bring Him glory for all eternity. And you were created to play a distinct role within His kingdom that will advance the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your life overflows the boundaries of you is not just a consumeristic existence, but your life is a giving existence that connects other people to their Creator and other people to the forgiveness that can only be found in Him as well. God loves you. God created you on purpose for a purpose. And I ask you this question today. Is today the day that God's Kind of opening up your heart to take that step of faith. Maybe you're like my friend Jeff. The day needs to be your moment. To be so kind as to bow y'all's heads. The band's going to come. They're going to lead us in a time in our service that we call the time of commitment. We'll sing together. We'll pray some more. We'll have an offering. We'll be leaving here in about 15 minutes. But before we leave... I want to give you an opportunity right now. If there's never been that time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior to make this your moment. This will be your story. When you say, I was sitting in church and the, and the preacher was preaching and God just opened up my heart and suddenly I believed every word about the story of Christ. You say, Lash, I don't know what to say. I don't know. I don't, just call out to God. 
Call out to God with sincerity of your heart. You may say something like this, Father, I ask for forgiveness for my sins. Lord, I, I'm placing myself, my life, all of me in your hands. And I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my Lord, as my Savior. And I'm asking you to save me today. Change my life, change my heart. Help me to be the person that you created me to be. And help me to live the life that you have for me. I'm placing my faith in you today, Lord. Pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. I want you to know this about me, about my wife. We're here to encourage you and help you. And if today was the day where you took that first step of faith, would you please come see us? We'll be here during this next song. We'll be here after church as well. Anything that I can do for you to encourage you as you follow after Christ, I want to help you. I want to embarrass you. I won't call you out or anything like that. I just want to help you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're real. You're not just a story that we see on TV and then the story ends and is never more. But you're real. And Father, we thank you that in you there, there are answers and in you there is meaning and in you there is hope. So Father, we don't have to avoid the hard questions of life because we have answers to the hard questions of life through Jesus Christ. So I pray that we might live for Him, serve Him, make Him known, and may we take great, great joy when we see people in our lives and in our world come alive in Jesus Christ. Help us as a church to be known as individuals who are following after You with all of our being and helping other people follow after You as well. Lord, I pray that in our lifetime, we will be a part of a great movement that sees people come to know Christ as Lord and Savior and grow to maturity in Him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, in Jesus' name that we worship. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing. Let me hear you sing today, church.